This is Shaco Art Speak. Welcome to Shaco Art Speak. I'm Ryan Letario here with Gareth Blackwell. Hey, everybody. And uh, we got a show for you today. Um, we, in the planning of Shaco Art Speak, talked a lot about um, wanting to do shows where Gareth and I focused on um, particular topics. And uh, in the conception of, of Shaco Art Speak, we had planned out a year and intermittently we'd have guests on. But what's transpired is, and since the planning of that, we uh, were presented with an opportunity to expand Shaco Art Space, uh, which is what uh, Shaco Art Speak flows out of, which is our nonprofit 501c3 uh, art gallery with um, you know programming to come and artist talks and lectures and an aspiration for residency and an art journal and a lot of different things that we've been uh, putting into um, planning and also communicating to the to the city at large. And so with this new space, we were able to create studios as you, as you've as you've heard us talk earlier or you've seen on our GoFundMe page. Um, and so in, in the taking on of this bigger opportunity, um, we had to kind of adjust our, um, our programming, a sequence of our programs for Shaco Art Speak. And so we front loaded with a lot of interviews so far, which have been fantastic um, and been just a great opportunity to hear from a lot of artists in the community and uh, start to get a rhythm for what um, this podcast can, can be like uh, and how it can you know, you know, benefit you all and give you a window in. And, um, but we also got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of positive feedback from you all, uh, regarding the talk that Gareth and I did. And so, um, we just want to let you know that, uh, we appreciate that. And, um, that's actually in the works. That's, that's kind of the plan. It's kind of like the bread and butter is that there would be a lot of talks, just Gareth and I kind of talking through things, especially as we come out of two different vantage points, starting points for, um, for how we think about art and design and culture. And so um, just to encourage you, uh, we that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. Um, we want to uh, give you a little bit more of a window into who we are just to, I think origin stories are always fun. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like uh, I just watched Spider-Verse finally. Yeah. I'm way behind and I'm ashamed, but my family and I loved it. Uh, I can nerd out on that for a long time. There's oh, yeah. so many... I mean, yeah, I'm I'm that guy. I'm late to the game, but that movie was pitch perfect. Totally, we. Uh, perfect. I think it's kind of on repeat at our house right now. Yeah, so it's. I mean, five we, six times a week. Yeah, we rented it, and uh, now like Laura's like, I'm buying that, and my kids are like, or I mean, yeah, a lot we can say there. But origin stories are a thing, and I think um, they set up, uh, you know, what's to come, and and kind of get give you a, a better window into like who we are, where we're coming from, and so Gareth. Dr. Blackwell, as I like to call him, has been, uh, you know, co-hosting this show, but also is a bit of a mystery. We, we don't know the full story. We don't know the Genesis story. We don't know if he came from Krypton. Um, we're not sure. We don't know if he has a cape that he wears at home. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I think he does. But um, so anyhow, so today we just want to I want to do an interview with Gareth um, Blackwell and just just kind of. Uh, hear a little bit of your story and how, how you, how you land here at this point by going back. Yeah, you definitely. Know? Yeah. So, um, what was it like being born? Um, so it was, it was, I was really comfortable for yeah. a while. Um, then this cold, harsh reality hit me. Yeah. Um, 
I don't remember seeing things well for the first little bit, but right. were you, um, did you know you were a designer before you were born? Uh, yeah, I feel like, I mean, that's part of it, yeah. right? Because, uh, I think one of the things designers do really well is they, they pre-conceptualize. That's right. So it was, uh, it was always kind of in the works. Yep. I, um, I just had to, I just had to get to a place where I had things like dexterity and language. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah those yeah. things held me back for a while. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. No, I could see that. I mean, you'd be surprised how, uh, I've read, I don't know if I should say that. I've read statements from people that have said that they were an artist before they were born. That's a true statement. Like, like somehow that gives me that, like somehow that is going to make me extra confident in their application. Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, you were an artist before you were born. Okay. <laughs> Definitely going to work with you now. <laughs> that, that solves it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm all for you did it as a kid. Like I did, you know, like Mike, I watch my kids. They do like my son every day declares he's an artist. So uh, no problem with that, but the the Michelangelo in the womb is kind of kind of hard for me. I'm like, yeah, I don't yeah. know, I just don't know how that's possible. I know. I mean, if you could just see the the interior of the womb, though, yeah, uh, I was I was putting some you know major fantastic work. Yeah, no one up on it. the walls just for you. I mean, you know, baby's first studio. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Cindy Sherman with the photo shoot inside mom's womb. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> anyhow, sorry for that, but uh, but truly though, um. You know, in this first season of of Shaco Art Speak, we we do we are kind of laying down some some foundation or some groundwork for yeah. uh, many episodes to come, and so I do think, you know, um, we plan on doing an, uh, sort of an interview of Gareth and then an interview of I, dealing just with us before Shaco Art Space and Shaco Art Speak, and I think I think um, I think that will just be something that gets locked away as like a a chapter in the in the book of this whole project. Uh, that will be useful and, and interesting for people who care to care to know. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, also I think, you know, both of these interviews will be helpful because I know I find it hard sometimes um, to remember that uh, things like an art gallery mm -hmm. have people behind them. Yeah. Um, and those people have interesting stories um, that actually make whatever that organization organization is just kind of work the way it does. Sure. And so yeah, it's always, yeah. I, I always find it interesting to, like I like to watch people's process. I like mm -hmm. to hear people's stories because yep. I like to see the way that those play out yeah. in their work or what they do or how they act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's every, every movie, uh, that I end up liking a great deal. I will watch the extra stuff, you know? And, and if you don't, you don't find out, you don't see like George Lucas sweating it out in the middle of nowhere in a desert in the seventies, making yeah. star Wars. And then you also don't see him sitting in a four foot room, eating a hot dog, yeah. directing somebody uh, to move some stuff around on the green screen, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get, you don't get the, Oh, that's why the prequels look the way they look. Right. Like, you know, like yeah. you don't get those stories and the maker's hand, if you will, is always uh, got its imprints on whatever is, is put forward as a cultural good or a cultural expression. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, we're not automaton. So that comes, comes from our, our frame, our, um, given, given strengths and weaknesses and the particular point at, you know, that we're at in our lives, as far as our, the weakness or the strength of our desires, yeah. you know, um, you know, you can be creating in a season of weakness where you're, you're feeling insecure or doubtful, uh, demotivated and the work, you know, on the one hand, people will say things like, Oh, it's about self-expression and then deny this fact. And then, so then it's like, are we talking about self-expression then? Because self-expression should bear some evidence of the self. 
right. whatever state you're in, kind of like journaling does. Yeah. But to a greater extent, as far as, uh, you know, whatever particular kind of manifestation we're talking about. So um, not to belabor it, but just to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of why we would even care to uh, unpack a little bit of who you are. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, so this is a big setup for you because you've had a stomach ache all day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. um, so talk. So so for you, um, I'm going to I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything okay. as much as I can. OK, so go for it. Redundancies aside. Um, how did how did you get into design? How did you get into art? Was there like what what kinds of things um, started to accumulate in your life uh, to the extent that you started to go like, huh? You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's that, it's kind of that question, um, that I've thought about a lot because looking back, I don't even feel like I see a straight line mm -hmm. in it. Um, but I think that, um, one word that kind of sums up a lot of things that have been hugely defining in my life would be reluctant. Um, so, uh, when I was a kid, like both my parents are, uh, musicians, my mom, uh, beautiful vocalist, uh, amazing voice. Um, my father pretty much can pick up an instrument and in like five minutes seem like he's played it for years. Um, so frustrating. It's really, especially, I want to be that person so bad. Oh, totally. And I, yeah. I don't have any of that in me. Um, so, uh, around the house as a kid, there was a bunch of music all the time. Um, my dad has a master's in composition. Mm. So he, uh, um, kind of taught me some of that, especially as I took a composition class in high school. And, um, it was just interesting cause there's always like sheet music places. Mm -hmm. And, um, I thought there was something kind of beautiful about sheet music. It was mm -hmm. just a neat thing. Cause then, you know, if you don't understand what you're looking at, it feels very arbitrary. Right. Um, and even like abstract in a way, um, even though it's the exact opposite of both of those things. Sure. Um, so, um, music was a big part of everything we did. And, um, my parents never shied away from, uh, the creative side of things. So, um, when I was a kid, I remember just drawing. Mm -hmm. I just loved drawing. Like probably everybody else that has a career in art or design yeah. started out drawing. Um, and where I started was really, I enjoyed looking at comic strips mm -hmm. and I enjoyed comic books. And so when I, um, we'd have like a Sunday paper and then Monday and Tuesday, I'd take that and I'd take the, the comic section of the paper. And I remember being in like my older sister's room on the floor. She was playing with some dolls and reading some books and doing some stuff. And I'm over there with like tracing paper at like four years old, tracing these shapes from mm -hmm. these comic strips. And that's really my earliest recollection of like anything that had to do even remotely mm -hmm. with art. Um, so at that point I really knew that I enjoyed like Mark making, but I didn't, I don't think I understood anything about what that looked like or had any knowledge that there could be a career right. remotely associated right. with it. So that feels kind of like the Genesis of it in a sense. And then, um, I started making, um, and more or less, like I, I was that annoying kid who like on father's day, my dad would get this thing that was pretty much like made out of garbage, but it was like, you know, cut up old Kleenex boxes and like paper towel rolls and scraps yeah. of wood. And I, I like, like that. made this thing and it's like, look, it's like a 
organizer for your watch and keys and stuff. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> it's literally garbage. Yeah. 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 So I, I enjoyed putting things together right. and making stuff. Um, and that never stopped. Right. 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 It's interesting. I, you know, <clears throat> just thinking, just listening to you talk and I'm going, man, you know, I'm in a season where I'm, you know, working with incoming freshmen, you know, and graduate students. So I, you know, uh, you're seeing people coming in and people leaving in, into their kind of professional experience. And we always ask the question, what are you going to do with that? People ask that question. What are you doing next? What are you doing next? And, and then I have children. So all my kids are like normal kids. They're not geniuses. You know, people cringe when I say that they feel like I'm talking bad about my kids, but I'm like, no, they're just like normal kids. Like, yeah, I'm good with, I'm okay with my kids not being brilliant. Um, they may be in the future, but I, I'm not, you know, uh, so in that realm of nor- whatever you want to call normal, it's just to say that they, they do, they draw. So kind of like, kind of like what you're talking about, you know? Um, and what's interesting is right now when they do it, there's no pressure on them for it to prove itself, to validate itself. Yeah. You know, there's no extra weighted task like, okay, if you're going to do this, it also has to bring in the money. And so, um, you know, I don't want to jump, I'm not jumping ahead, but I guess I just want to like put that out there that that's a thought that we might come back to. I'm just curious to hear more about that because I, yeah, you know, it, it, it does. It's interesting how many, so, you know, I use the three categories. You have commodity and you have pragmatism or utility, and then you have like, you know, art design for art design's sake, or, you know, problematic stuff like saying beauty for beauty's sake or something like that. But, um, you know, we forget that that has to be there too. And, but, but kids somehow don't have that problem. And I just, you know, I wonder about our education and how we could sustain, cultivate a little more of that, um, wonder and appreciation divorce from commodity and pragmatism, not so that we lose sight of it, but so that it creates a stronger union. So what I'm saying is, so one's not left, left behind for the other, you know, as a thought. Um, so anyhow, I'd love to kick that around on the back end. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, it's a fantastic point. I'd love to come back to that. Yeah. So you started, so, so with you, so then, you know, by 10, you started making money being an artist. Yeah. It was uh, extremely lucrative, uh, from an early age. Um, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, It was, it was actually something that, um, you know, kind of growing up poor, you don't, uh, that pragmatism actually comes in a lot sooner than, than maybe it would in a perfect world. That's right. So, um, you know, I would spend my summers, uh, we would, we had these like summer reading programs at the local library. And so, um, my mom would take all of us and we'd spend like hours at the public library. And I just remember sitting back in the stacks in like, um, whatever it is, the fine arts section, mm-hmm. um, and looking at like the old masters and looking at, um, like character artists and editorial illustration. And it was all these books that were like, you know, the best editorial illustration, 1993, mm-hmm. you know, and just like flipping through these and checking stacks of these books out to like go home and see how people did things. Right. And, um, so it was kind of this like immersive, passive learning in mm-hmm. a sense um, that could kind of turn into an active learning a little later as I was actually trying to do some of this stuff. Um, but that kind of got compartmentalized during the summer. So mm-hmm. there were like poster competitions in elementary school or whatever. And you, I'd enter stuff like that. But for the most part, like I just got into a place and not, not forced for my parents or anything, but got into a place where I realized like I got to 
I got to figure out how to like make a good living. Right. And um, how old were you? How old were you? <laughs> dude, was, this is like junior high, man. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's uh, I was trying to tie my shoes and figure out why my bones were so skinny. Like, I, I pretty much feel like I hit puberty and turned into like an 80 year old man. <laughs> and I've been trying to like roll back the clock ever since. Benjamin Button. Dude. <laughs> yeah. It's straight up you're, Benjamin Button. You're force feeding Benjamin Button on yourself. You're like, I got to get younger. <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, but it's I mean, it's been kind of good in some ways. Uh, so I had folks that I went to school with that. Like for years, we're just like, you're, you're way too serious. Man. Did you carry a briefcase to, to school? No, okay. I didn't. But there okay. were times I straight up was rocking a tie. No doubt. I know you were. I could yeah. tell. I could see that. Yeah. It's, I think it's always like a huge, fantastic thing that, uh, the people that are like closest to me now didn't meet me at certain parts of my life. Cause we wouldn't be friends. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, cause I didn't know how to tie a tie until I was like 30. I it, still don't really know how to tie one. Well, it, I mean like, even like my wife, I'd say that I'm like, you know, if we had met like five yeah. years earlier we probably oh yeah laura and i say all the time laura would definitely not be interested in me i was a douchebag <laughs> that's, that's the Absolute exact same idiot. way i tell my wife i was Absolute like idiot. Would not, not have yeah. Been. yeah not that i'm so great now but just yeah i was a piece of work so well i think i mean like so all that to say is you know in early age i was just like i gotta pay for college somehow i gotta <laughs> figure out what to do and so uh i've i've kind of been this uh Sorry. no it's all good it's definitely worth uh your reaction because uh there's no real sense that like in eighth grade uh somebody should like realistically talk to you about a five-year plan that they have no um but i was yeah i was that like type a type right person who is yeah very much about that and mm-hmm. so um I don't know. I think I, I just compartmentalized like yeah. any art sort of stuff. So all during high school, I didn't, I didn't take an art course. Right. Um, I was taking all the other things that would give me, you know, more towards class rank or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, because my focus in all of high school was just, I got to get some scholarships. Right. right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So a lot of it kind of got pushed to the side and for a while I just, didn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. But what's funny is it always seemed to sort of break through the cracks, Yeah, you know, kind of like the way, um, if you have like a levee holding back water, yeah, like that water is strong enough. It's going to push through some yep. crack somewhere at some point. Um, and so there were different organizations I was a part of, um, that were, um, people have lovingly referred to them as like nerd organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, because we would do things like we would develop, uh, blueprints for, uh, conceptualizing a solution to a problem. And then with those blueprints, we'd have to create architectural models for them. Right. And we entered these in like state and national competitions. Yeah. Um, and so those sort of things were always still going on. So that's uh, super nerdy. It's real nerdy. Yeah. I mean, especially like you're doing this in ninth grade Yeah. and then you go to these competitions with like thousands of other people like that it was yeah. nice you start to find your tribe no i think know? that's great man I, I feel like there's that pressure at that age and and uh because i was kind of a nerd i was trying to run hard away from it yeah and i was trying to hide and, and be accepted by the 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 in the cliche way the popular crowd or whatever but but you know but then there's those people that ran hard into the nerd stuff and they're like the future was there <laughs> you know so you're like yeah at some point you finally realize i just got to embrace you know my tribe oh, yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah. And, i mean so that was kind of what was going on through you know elementary school junior high high school mm-hmm. whatever um and um i think by the time i got uh through high school um uh, my plans had changed a few times because i had been revising that five-year plan of mine sure um which i 
since have uh, dropped. Right. That's good. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't need to have like a, a counseling session on my next five years. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it's yeah. all um, some maturity is growing with some wisdom, a, a little broader scope on looking at things a little bit more now. Yeah. Um, so um, my favorite plan was, yeah, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be a lawyer because uh, they make money. Yeah. Lawyers. Um, and you know, uh, and to be completely honest at the time I was a, a kind of, um, uh, arrogant, argumentative child. Mm. And so I figured, Hey, these are perfect skills to roll into <laughs> a degree in law Yeah, because I can argue a point and then I can get paid for it. Yeah. Which is just laughable yeah. to think that that's like even the context of what of a life. law degree does <laughs> yeah, and what right. a life is. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, did you watch the was it was that movie called The Advocate with? What was that movie where it was like uh, about a lawyer, and he's uh, he's um, oh, is Al Pacino is like Satan. <laughs> oh yes, do you remember that? Yes, I know what you're talking I mean, about. It is, he keeps trying to like have a son. Who's yeah, be the Antichrist, but they're lawyers. They're all lawyers. Yeah, it feels a little heavy handed. Yeah, it? it's a little heavy handed. <laughs> it's like gosh, man, that's a that's an awesome view of lawyers. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> No, I mean, it, but I think for me, there were, there were things where like, there was an idealism to it right? where I thought like, oh, I'll go into something like environmental law, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I'll be, you know, an advocate for, yeah, for, you know, people, groups, things that are not, you know, really having the voice or the power to speak. Um, so there was definitely this like um, idealistic streak to it. But at the end of the day, it really came down to the fact that I knew what the starting salary was for a junior associated some law practice. Right. And that was the only thing that was appealing. Sure. So anything else that I really enjoyed, I just kind of like pushed to the side. Right. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that like enjoyment should be the defining factor of what you do with your life mm-hmm. because anything is going to be work and work is never hundred percent enjoyable. Yeah. But, um, I was going the opposite way of just saying, all I care about is that paycheck. Right. I need to not be poor. Right. So, I'll be especially, this. If you, especially, you know, for some, like I grew up poor as well and I didn't have the response that you, you had, you know, I kind of embraced it to the point that I've had to kind of rethink a lot of things as I've gotten older. But, um, but that makes, I mean, it's, it's an understandable way that many people respond to their, their upbringing and their circumstances. Oh yeah. And where were you from again? So you were living where? Gosh, all yeah. over the Southeast. Um, I'd moved about six times before okay. I was 10 um, and spent, uh, the majority of my life on the Mississippi Gulf coast. Okay. Um, and so we were about two miles from the beach. Yeah. It was a very blue collar town. So it was, um, we had a shipyard, we had, uh, oil refineries. Um, so it was a lot of kind of heavy industry type right, stuff. Right. Blue collar town, about 40, 50,000 people when I was there. Um, and Honestly, the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast is a highly diverse area. Sure. So it was a, a great place to grow up in a lot of ways because um, you ended up in a in towns that felt small but had mm-hmm. a huge amount of diversity mm-hmm. um, in all aspects. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, any demographic group, there's diversity in it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, lived there most of my life, the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. This is tangential, but you know, when you talk about it, it was diverse and sizable, but felt small. Is that because of the intimate way individuals work together? So, because I feel like 
scale changes happen in communities when you start to know each other. The world gets smaller. And so even cities can become small if uh, people know each other. Oh, yeah. It's only big when you don't know each other. No, or, you know, true. in part, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the way that um, my town did it is you had, um, I don't know, probably 10, 12 different elementary schools right. that you could go to. And so each of them were very much neighborhood based. Gotcha. So um, the elementary school I went to uh, was literally two blocks from my house. It said walk, ride my bike, whatever. Right. Um, and all those folks were also my neighbors. Yeah. So you were at school having class and playing with your friends and then you would leave school. And those are the folks you're playing basketball with and street hockey and you're riding yeah. your bikes with and doing all this stuff. Um, and so in that way, like, you know, 40, 50,000 people kind of got condensed down to a few yep. hundred. Yeah, yeah. And what you ended up with was a really fantastic community where there were, there were guys that I, you know, moving there in third grade, started playing basketball and soccer in fourth grade. And there were some of the guys I, I knew when I started in fourth grade that I was still playing soccer with as a senior in high school. Right. Right. And so it was very kind of a much smaller community Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I bring that up too. I think it's worth noting that. Cause I think when we talk about in the, you know, sh shaping community, even, even through the art space, um, trying to figure out what has shaped our conception of community and, um, you know, and how those act as intuitive checks and balances, but also how those are formed passively, like you said earlier, and how sometimes we need to look at those and, and kind of rethink like what, what constitutes real community? Cause that's the thing that people talk about a lot, but what does it actually look like uh, when you're talking about multiple communities, the formation of community and, and um, not pressurizing community in the wrong way. Um, anyhow, I just think those are, those are interesting things to think about in the context of, um, yeah, just the future of the space. Uh, definitely. And, and honestly, like that longevity piece uh, I was just talking about, I feel mm -hmm. like that's a, that's a part of community that I don't, I don't know how much we actually I really talk about. Yeah. Um, especially now when most folks are not going to be living in a place for 30 years. Sure. Right. You're moving around, you know, maybe you're six months in this job, yep. three years in this one, you're in this apartment for 18 months, this one for six more mm -hmm. months. Um, you know, life happens and that's, we've got to do the things that we can do. I mean, that's one of the constraints. Um, but when it comes down to it, um, you know, this past weekend I had to fly home, um, cause a good friend of mine, his father passed away and this was my best friend from mm -hmm. like third grade on just yeah. like, uh, kind of like a brother to me. Um, we hadn't spoken or hung out that much in years. Um, but the fact that we had this long longevity of yeah. like connection was huge. And so even though we hadn't spoken like at length for a few years, we could still get together and have like real impactful conversations. Right. Because everything that was already there. Yeah. The um, groundwork had been laid. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And if it's, uh, you know, good soil, if so to speak, you know, yeah. things can continue to grow there, you know, as far as relationships or, Definitely able to pick up with understanding the soil you're in and what kind of thing you are and you know how you grow that kind of that kind of idea I guess but um and so so yeah so you're from you know a certain point and then you're you're shifting around you're you're, you're thinking about being a lawyer and and um, I think you're doing what a lot of folks do I guess which is to concern themselves with security and also identity like what I mean yeah. by that is like what gives me value mm -hmm. what gives me hope what communicates to other people that I'm worthy and valuable. And so I think, you know, just 
want to infuse that into the discussion. I think for for the the kind of the back end of this this talk, I guess is is how um, these pressures collapse on each other and make it difficult to do work. Um, yeah. But um, so so here, so there you are. You're thinking about being a lawyer, and you've got some good reasons for doing it, but you've also got some other motivations that maybe don't belong necessarily. So so how does that how does that play itself out? Yeah, it's. It, it's tough because one of the things in my high school, we had a, a very strong uh, like vocational and technical uh, component in the school. Um, and there were amazing classes there that I always wanted to take, but they, you know, wouldn't have done enough for my GPA or class rank or something. So I didn't take them. So these classes, I mean, you could come out of the high school I went to and you could be a junior draftsman at graduation from high school. Mm. And you could roll right into a career as a draftsman. Um, same thing with things like uh, like welding and like auto body mechanic uh, sort of stuff. There were so many courses that I really wanted to take, mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't because they didn't fit into this plan of like make money, right? Whatever. Um, so late in high school, I'm already kind of feeling this this pull because um, I really wanted to take those drafting classes. I had an interest in architecture and the design side of all of that, but I just didn't. So um, I go to college, and during the summer when I come home, um, trying to get some money, so I'm uh, looking for a job, and I say, well, you know, hey, I've got another one of these five-year plans, so uh, if I'm going to get into law school, I better have some experience around it. So the first summer home, I, I get a job at the the county courthouse and uh, I'm working in one of the records departments. Um, it's a good experience. Mm -hmm. The money's nice, whatever. Um, no problem. Sophomore year, go to school, come back. Um, and summer after sophomore year, I go back to the courthouse. I think I'm just going to work the same job I had the summer before. And they say, no, we need you somewhere else. It was not as good of an experience. So I was in the court department um, doing records and I was doing things like court reporting, filing, working with lawyers on like uh, gathering documents and things like that. Um, and I can't stress this enough. I hated every minute of it. Yeah. Like it just, there was something about it where I was like, I cannot, I can't find the thing to enjoy about this. Um, the tasks were not amazing. Uh, the things I was dealing with, like, honestly, were just getting me really upset mm -hmm. because everything was uh, kind of depressing. Yeah. And I mean that because uh, the majority of things that I was working with were people getting divorces. Mm -hmm. um, estates were like siblings were bickering over the things that their parents left. Yeah. And fighting for years in court over this stuff. And it was just kind of it was difficult. Yeah. And, uh, I met a lawyer that summer who, um, kind of reiterated everything for me. And one day he came in and I had helped him a lot with uh, getting files and collecting stuff. And he, uh, he looked at me and he's kind of disheveled. His mm. hair's a little messed up. His tie's loose. His jacket's got some like donuts powder or something on it. Yeah. You know, and he's, uh, he looks at me and he's like, don't ever do this. <laughs> and I was just, it was like, did I say that? Wait. Yeah. And he just like, like stone cold was like, don't do this. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, you know, just another bad day, huh? And he was like, no, seriously. All I do is break people's marriages up. Yeah. Take their kids away from them, figure out how I can help them fight each other. And of course that's a very extreme. Yeah. But what he said in that moment kind of like crystallized a lot of the experiences I already yeah. had. 
That was your Christmas Carol moment. Yeah, I know, Scrooge. right? <laughs> For real. Yeah, Marley's just coming in yeah. with the chains on, and uh, I'm and I'm not saying that that's I'm not painting with a broad brush and saying that sure. is the legal profession right. or lawyers at mm. all. But it was very much from my experience and the fact that I honestly had nothing <laughs> tied up in this that remotely was about care or concern or helping somebody out or having any sort of idealistic thought about what law could really be about because it was so pragmatic that it became, it, it couldn't sustain itself. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, cause anything that's too pragmatic, I feel at times has to be balanced out by some sort of level of passion. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise the pragmatism just becomes such a daily task mm -hmm. that it takes away any, any real energy to do this stuff. I also think too, um, something in there that's just, you know, I'm just thinking, listening to you and picturing what you're talking about. And I guess as I picture it, um, this is an incomplete thought, but there's something about the way we work that either is humanizing towards the ends of flourishing or, uh, increase of some kind of pot. Like, you know, this is a, again, a cheesy way of saying it, some kind of positivity, I guess. Um, if you will, some kind of larger benefit, um, horizon extending kind of thing, or it actually is uh, perpetually dehumanizing in some kind of way. And so it could be super sneaky dehumanizing where you just start to get worn out by the task. Yeah. And then it doles out your senses to the people that um, you're interacting with. Mm -hmm. And you start to, it, it becomes easy to kind of lump people together um, into these, uh, these kind of like desensitized, dehumanizing categories. And, um, you know, it could happen anywhere. You know, you're working, you know, I worked at an art store and I got dumped on, I mean, goodness, I never, I could, I thought working at an art store was gonna be amazing. And I couldn't believe how rude and, you know, ignorant and rude people could be and the kinds of things they'd say to you. And I started to get bitter, man. Like, and I was like, I'm working at an art store that was great. Yeah. Ideally. And, uh, that, you know, I started to get annoyed. I was like studying school art in school and was starting to get pissed at art. And artists, yeah. I was like, these people are jerks. Wait, I'm one of these people. You know, I mean, it's a, it can happen anywhere. You know? Right, definitely. <clears throat> um, and I, I don't know. And, and at that point, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, so, um, so I'm kind of pursuing. You know, so we're kind of picking up, I guess, on this. I'm, I'm kind of ignoring a lot of things that I really have interest in, mm -hmm. the, and the kind of interest that doesn't just make you go, oh, this is fun. I'd love to do this as a hobby, but the interest that would actually sustain the ability to study deeply and work hard. Right. So I'm ignoring that. And then um, at the same time, I'm pursuing something that I know is not really of interest to me for only monetary value. I love that. So all that's coming together, right? right. So this is kind of like this water I'm swimming in. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, school is going on and things are happening. And I had a terrible sophomore year of college, mm -hmm. um, like to the point where they were, I mean, not able to get out of bed, like all this sort of stuff. Um, so I ended up, uh, reaching out to a counselor at the university and I was like, uh, this doesn't feel right. And, um, and it didn't feel right mainly because I can kind of see in other people's faces that it didn't seem right to them either. Sure. So sophomore year, um, I get diagnosed, uh, with some depression. And, mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, so there's this kind of this moment that's happening where all these things are colliding and I'm really at a spot where I can have a little clarity to be like, what am I, what am I actually doing? 
So this happened sophomore year. I go home, have that terrible summer experience. Um, and 4th of July rolls around. We have this long weekend. Things are closed. Uh, and I come back whatever days after 4th of July that year. And uh, I come to my desk and I just see this inbox on my desk. that feels like it's like 15 feet tall. And I look at it and I look around the room and I'm just like, hey, when I go to lunch, I'm not coming back. I'm, I'm, I quit. <laughs> I'm done with this. Which didn't make sense because, I mean, I was highly pragmatic. So, of course, I knew exactly how much money I was going to make over the summer and how that was yeah. going to pay for all the stuff in the fall, this, that, and the other. And so right. I just bounced out. Right. And my parents were very supportive with it. Yeah. They were just like, no, that's fine. Like, we get it. So here I am, two years through school, on a scholarship, and I suddenly have no more five-year plan. So I'm sitting there and I'm kind of having this existential crisis. Cause I'm like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I can't pay for extra time. I can't change my major. What's going on. So I was doing a, I was involved in a communications program cause I figured, Hey, I write, speak. That's what I need to go to law school. So the next semester when I come back to school, uh, one of the required courses was, uh, this is 200 level design course. Yeah. And it was about design principles. So it was all the basics of, um, what it looks like to do print design. Right. And, uh, from the first five minutes, I remember sitting in the chair and I could see the professor, black suit, red tie, and he started talking. In the first five minutes, I was like, wait a minute. Did you have theme music in the back of your mind playing? Like, did it get become cinematic? Like, uh, was Creed in the background playing? Well, I just heard the news today. I mean, uh, now forevermore it will be when Seems I remember that. Life, gonna change. Yeah, so, uh, but I did have a... Um, I don't know if, if Scott Snap was, <laughs> was, was singing in the background, but I definitely did have a wow. Yeah. I just, I, I feel bad, but cause like I'm hearing you tell a story and I'm like, man, dude, this is like one of those moments where the, the music comes on. Cause you're yeah. like, my life's going to change. So I got, I've been dieting myself cause somehow Creed uploaded him like satellite debris orbits my brain. And comes into the atmosphere when people say things. And sometimes the voice is just too strong. So Scott Stapp snuck in. I'm sorry, man. Oh, it's all good. I mean, you know, Scott Stapp. I'm feeling your story. That's why. So I'm starting to have an emotional cinematic reaction. (laughs) I feel like Scott Stapp, that's kind of a good thing. He just kind of sneaks in anyway. Just what it is. Nobody wants him in your house, your your mental house. Dang it, Scott. It's all on. Get out, Scott. Get out, Scott, now. People don't even know who Scott Stepp is. If you don't know who Scott Stepp is, good for you. Yeah, for <laughs> Congratulations. You can, yeah. you can find Creed on iTunes or at your local yeah, record right. store. <laughs> that was good. That was actually really good. Um, so, uh, we love art, by the way. Yeah, I don't know if this it's is, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, so I'm kind of having this moment, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is actually fantastic. This is, and so um, if I... I think if I want to be kind of revisionist about it at that moment, I kind of feel like something is kind of waking back up in my brain. Right. And it was at that moment where it felt like all of the stuff with art and design that I'd loved all those years and my pragmatism kind of had come together. And cause very much the first lecture was about, okay, here are these kind of jobs you can get with this. This is how you do this. This is what sure. it looks like. Um, these are the things we're going to learn. And in that moment, I, it was kind of like the first time somebody had said to me, you know, you can have a career in this, you know, you can make money from this. Right. And honestly, that was the one piece that was missing for me is somebody to say, no, you could support a life and a family. Yeah. 
and you could do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, it really was like a, a switch was flipped. Sure. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. all this stuff that I've loved doing since I was four years old. Right. I could actually do something with, yeah. and I'm going, yeah, yeah, I can yeah. go to school for that. Right. So the next two years, all I did was every course I could, um, within that communications major that was about communication design. That was about, uh, photography. That was about, um, any sort of, uh, layout or whatever it was, anything in that realm I took. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it was fantastic because the program also, the professor had some of this, like this keen foresight for how things were going. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is 2001 to 2005. Okay. Right? So we're sitting there and he's saying, Hey, the future of these creative careers is going to be highly entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And of course everybody was like, Oh, that's, that's so quaint. Right. And, it's, and now we're sitting here and it's like, are. yeah, it's what it is. Yep. You know, he's like, things are changing within the economy and stuff's going to be different. And so this is kind of um, what he's talking about. And a lot of his upper level courses married the creative work with kind of the business development side of things. Right. Because it was all about entrepreneurism, innovation, creating new things. And so his definitions really felt good to me yeah because what he was saying was hey you're creative you're making things and because of that there's something very intrinsic about like entrepreneurship and innovation and what you do right not that what you do is that but that those the same elements apply in some spaces within creative work because we always want to make something that's new and exciting Mm -hmm. we want to make something that can give us careers yeah and so i was like hey this makes sense It feels practical and it's something that I have some passion for. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's interesting because it's not the, I mean, what I love is that it's not this, the traditional road. And I don't even really know if there is one, but I do meet a lot of people that think I, I just, you know, um, I think, so we were both professors and I see a lot of, I do a lot of portfolio reviews and I do a lot of, um, you know, for, I've got a decade or more worth of, um, portfolio reviews and looking at young aspiring designers and artists, you know, through VCU, um, you know, which is this number one public art school in the country. And so it's got a lot of prestige. And so you get a lot of pressure that uh, people put on themselves to get to this place because this place is going to, oh, yeah. you know, make them. And in a lot of ways it does, it, it, it's a, a phenomenal place to work. Uh, but I see a lot of pressure in the normalizing of the way one becomes successful excludes all the ways one becomes quote unquote successful, whatever that means. Meaning like there's a lot of different ways or pathways towards obtaining to whatever the goals are a given aspiring designer artist has. And so we want to quickly box ourselves in and then, and then go, okay, that's it. And I think what happens is those stories, i.e. I I did AP art. I uh, now I'm going to this top ranked university I'm going to transfer these units over to get done faster. I'm going to plow through, get my master's degree, and then I'm going to change the world. And there's something admirable about the ambition in that, I I suppose, the aspiration. But it's like it doesn't always work that way. And the obtaining of knowledge doesn't, uh, you know, necessarily accord or or work that way. And so, but but what I see that happens as a byproduct of that is because that's such a strong narrative. 
There's also a way that it diminishes or renders skepticism on anyone whose narrative doesn't follow that path. Totally. So it creates division or exclusion and hierarchy in it. It promotes a a brand of elitism, I guess. And so, um, how do you, how do you, have you, have you had to deal with that? Like, have you felt like that's been a thing for you to have to navigate? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, cause, uh, I even had somebody ask the other day, they're like, oh yeah, what, uh, what art school did you go to? Right. And I'm like, um, what? Yeah. So I was just like, I, cause it felt, it felt like, uh, like a non sequitur sure. kind of in a conversation. Yeah. So we were talking about like what we actually do. Right. And then it was like, oh, I need validation of this now. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. like, so well, what, what's what backs that? Is it backed by gold? Right. You know? And <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, you know, I, I'm sorry. VCU gold. Yeah. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, uh. I was like, I got my PhD at VCU and all of my PhD focused on the arts. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just weird because, um, you know, I've got an MA. Sure. And a PhD. So already within like very staunch kind of art and design circles that, that almost is a mark against me. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, you can, you can talk about it. Sure. Great. Right. And you always hear that little bit of, of condescension in those conversations. Cause I've been, I've been at conferences where I've, where I've talked to people and they're like, well, it's, it's really fantastic how you're able to, to talk about this. Right. Right. And I'm like, yeah, as a, as opposed to what? Right. Cause I've, I've got client work for 12 years that I've been doing, um, national and international clients. I think I'm, I think I'm okay with doing it too. Yeah. Maker. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd love to see that paradigm bust up more the that those that can't teach and you know, that kind of dichotomy that, that's, um, it just isn't, it isn't, it's a truism, you know, but yeah. it's not true. Exactly. It's not, it's not, um, fixed. Uh, so you may, if you look for a confirmation bias says you'll find it, mm-hmm. but, um, it doesn't mean that it's, it's entirely true. And, you know, like, I mean, so I think part of what's gonna make this podcast interesting is our stories are so the opposite. You know, yeah. so I come out of an utterly fine art background, mm-hmm. you know, I got, three degrees steeped in it. So, I mean, I think that's what makes, I think in the long run, our stories, uh, create a plot points. And, uh, yeah. I think that's what, uh, I'm open to learning from you and I'm not threatened by your, your story or your differences or yeah, definitely. Or, yeah. And I, and I think vice versa. And I think the hope is that, that, that you're going to see that, um, in the people we talk to and you're going to see that, um, manifest in the, in the, just the build out of Shaka art space as we ex- expand, and I think the fear is that if you if you embrace otherness, you lose something about what you're upholding. And I think that's just going to be a constant talking talking point. It's like you, you don't you, maybe, but maybe not. And and um, sometimes we got to be okay with certain aspects taking a back seat for a while. You know? Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I don't know. It's uh, you know, if you think about even like the metaphor of like having a, like a table that you're inviting people up to, right. You know, and kind of sharing a meal with them. Like the problem with a situation like that is never the number of people at the table. It's how much food you're willing to dole out. Yeah. You know? And so, um, whenever we kind of have these conversations where it's like, Oh, you can't be at the table. Right. I'm just like, I, I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the purpose behind that. I don't know the reasoning Yeah, because I feel like, um, in those instances where you've had a lot of folks over, like, like it's, it's like a holiday party or something like that, a bunch of people around a table, it's actually fantastic because the more folks are around that table, the more lively and fantastic mm-hmm. the conversation is yeah. and the better the night becomes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, typically, typically enriching and, um, you know, I guess I keep going back to humanizing or in, in, um, you know, in, in, 
there's always a propensity. I think all of us have to guard against um, a better than thou yeah. mindset. You know, I mean, I have, I have, <clears throat> I feel it sometimes, you know, if somebody seems a little too high on their horse mm-hmm. and you're also aware that maybe they haven't really, you know, I mean, put it into extreme characterization. You know, sometimes I mean, you know, doing an art space, you're going to get people that apply that just haven't made much work and they don't realize that. Well, maybe I'll go to a better example. When I worked at the art store, we had a, a guy come in who I may have already shared the story, but um, it just sticks out to me as a, a kind of micro crystallized example. Um, he comes into the store with his sister. They're probably in their mid thirties at the time, maybe early forties. And, uh, you know, I'm like a young, at that point, I think I was working on my MA. So I was out of my BA into my MA before my MFA. So I'm in, in a certain headspace, you know, reading a lot of theory and making these paintings and kind of really overly serious. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they come into the art store and they're like, we had a gallery attached to it. So they asked if they could, um, so she goes, show them, show them. And he smirks and he like has something behind his back. And I'm like, what's up guys? You know, like, what do you, what do you, what do you got? And, uh, he pulls out a little painting. He made it of a flower. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, cool. <laughs> and then, so he's like, well, I'm here. Cause I want to know if I can get a show at your gallery. And then she's like, this is the first painting he's ever made. Mm. And I was like, um, it's like, well, um, normally, you know, when we do a show, there's, you know, criterion and, you know, you feel terrible cause you're like, there's a sincerity there that I want to support, but there's a lack of awareness, you know? And so in those moments you're like, and that's an yeah. extreme example, but yeah, we had to, had to point out that there's some great how to books with flowers that actually look better on the cover than what he had painted. So there's a whole discussion he's not aware of. And so the world's small to him and the arts are small to him, but he's not excluded from doing that and trying. Right. But I'm not excluded from helping him see that there's range of possibility and we're, we're operating at different levels. Um, I think the temptation there though, is just to be condescending. Yeah, totally. uh, And you know, so I have to work against that. You know, even, even, even here, I mean, I think that's the thing that everybody has to try to work against. Um, yeah. Cause we all want our territory. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, and it's, uh, it, I think it really is easy to be in a spot where you just become the old man on your porch yelling at kids to get off your lawn, get off my lawn. You know, like I just see that picture of, uh, like Clint Eastwood and Gran Turismo. Yeah. Uh, or Torino. Yeah. I Gran like Turismo, Turismo better though. Yeah, I was like, that's not it. <laughs> Gran, Gran Turismo. That's uh, it. Gran Torino, you know, and yeah. he's like sitting there kind of like with a shotgun on his lap. Like, yeah. Guarding this car that he, he has. looks way cooler though. Like it would be me. There'd be like a, I'd have like a, you know, an old tank top on with mustard stains on it. And my belly would be <laughs> yeah. growing in the moment <laughs> and I'd be too tired to get up to tell him anything. So that's why I'd have to yell it from the porch. Yeah. Watch my lawn, you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm watching it too. <laughs> it's worth watching. <laughs> but I mean like, I don't, you know, I don't think that's a bad picture though. If I think the way that we kind of, we kind of gesture yeah. and uh, posture ourselves for, I agree. Like I space. Right. And you know, and it's, it's interesting because I, I had a conversation, uh, about midway through my, um, my doctoral program with somebody who was very much like, uh, practitioners are the only people who should have a voice in the conversation. Wow. And I was like, Whoa. um, I was like, well, I am a practitioner. And they're like, no, 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 you're not. And wow. I was like, but, but how do you, like, how do you define it? Like I literally yeah. I do client work and, provides my family with income. Yeah. Um, my clients like that. Right. Um, and they're like, no, 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 you're, you're like a, you're like an academic. Yeah. So you, you don't get to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and so 
uh, at that point, you're kind of at a space where you just say to yourself, like, I don't know there's any way I can win this. So maybe I'll just join the mire. Right. And Start I was a podcast. Like, and I was like, uh, so, so what happens to all you practitioners when people like me stop being a part of the conversation and we can't talk about what you're doing, show the cultural value of it. Yeah. And they're like, well, you don't, my work does that. Right. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know your work could like write and speak. Yeah. 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 I didn't know that your work could connect to other bodies of knowledge. Yeah. Which is hugely important. Cause I think if you look at, if you look at the people that we really look up to, like think back to like when you were like starting out in art school or whatever, and you saw somebody's work, you said, Oh, this is really fantastic. Yep. It's great. And you tried to model what you did off of sure. them or you started looking at their practice. Like you were talking about the bonus features on a movie. Like when you started to look into it, like it wasn't as singular as I think sometimes it gets painted. Totally. They had interests in really weird places. And they had but, friends that didn't do it. Right. Yeah. It's not just, yeah. I mean, most of the times. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's yeah. the myth making of like the singular genius, typically a male, you know, is, is like a, a skewed. This is very skewed. Skewed understanding. And, uh, you know, horribly and, so. And not only does it, is it detrimental to like the discourse, but yep. it's also detrimental to the actual practitioning. Practicing is anything practicing. I love making up words. Dude, I feel like I'm we're doing free it all, to do it. Dude, all morning. Do it. Keep doing it. Um, but you know the the practitioners <laughs> with the practitioners. I think it's detrimental there too because yeah. you start to say, "Well, I can only do it this way, so I can't look outside of my field." Yeah, and that becomes problematic. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, and then we kind of have to be at a place where we say, "Well, now I got to jumpstart my work because I'm not yeah. really not really doing some stuff I want to do." Yeah. Um, so, you know, with, with all of that, um, there was definitely times that I feel, um, where it was like, uh, oh, isn't that nice kind of discussions because, you know, I, I liked reading design history right. and design theory right, and talking about how valid it was or how we might better understand it or mm -hmm. how it connected to other things, um, but also I saw how necessary it was as I was reflective upon my own work. Sure. Um, and how it, it changed the way I approached my work. I right. did my work. Um, and I evaluated my work. Mm -hmm. It was much more helpful than me just sitting in a room doing it over and over again. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, um, there was pushback, but I, th I think it's at a point now where, um, I had, I had somebody at, at VCU a few years ago had a conversation with me. Um, pretty soon after that conversation I had where somebody was like, Oh, you're not a valid voice. Um, and I was speaking with him and he was the, um, he was higher up in one of the departments at VCU arts. And I said, am I, am I doing something wrong? Mm -hmm. Like, this is a bad idea. And he looked at me, he said, no, he said, uh, I think you're on the beginning side of a conversation that's expanding. Um, so it's gonna be uncomfortable, but he said, I think in 20 years, what you're doing will be much more normalized and accepted within art practice right more than it is now right and i was like well that's comforting yeah that's interesting yeah i mean you know i i've worked with artists and this is just in general and i've worked with artists <clears throat> there's definitely been seasons when you when you're coming out of like the um i mean um if you look at the 80s you had reaganomics and you had the explosion of like bombastic art making and the markets were flooded with uh, high dollar, um, large scale neo-expressionist painting like Julian Schnabel, Eric Fischel. It's all yeah. these painters in New York. And so so um, there was a rush to just like purchase and prop up this work. And what happened was um, 
people with money were uh, uh, doing that in assigning value and assigning personal value to being associated with that. And they created this kind of cultural milieu. The galleries were just rolling. And then the economy bottom out. And what was interesting is, so there was a bunch of haves in that season through the 80s. And then it, it went to a shift of have-nots. And in the have-nots, uh, critical discourse kicked in. And so artists started to uh, have to, you know, you had feminist theory, uh, second wave maybe-ish, um, different kinds of social practice theories, nonprofits started to kick up. People started to have, had to, artists had to create infrastructure to support the art. And because the galleries weren't doing it and there was high skepticism about what constituted that dollar amount for that Schnabel painting, those painters, uh, uh, kind of uh, succumb to a certain level of skepticism and, and um, doubt about the value of their work. And that's kind of changed now. I mean, like longevity or time has given us a better perspective. But in the 90s, it was really interesting because then all of a sudden critical discourse became a uh, part of the discussion and there was an openness to otherness as it relates to um, how, do we, how do we do this? So critical discourse became more uh, commentary-based and... Um, and, uh, you know, people started to rally around each other in unlikely ways because they couldn't trust the gallery system as it had previously been established in the 80s. And so the 90s produced really interesting um, manifestations of creativity that uh, didn't neatly fit into the canon. And that pushed into the 2000s. And the, two, the, 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 the 90s soil shifted over and spilled into kind of something similar to the eighties in the early two thousands. And so post nine 11, you get into something similar where all of a sudden the market drives up, people start to assign personal value, uh, to particular kinds of expressions. Institutions start to conform to those standards. So you can see academic shifts sway towards that power, that power structure, that kind of hegemonic power structure. And then the economy bottoms out again. And we're back in the nineties, but we're talking about 2008 on, on into now. Yeah. And so, if, so and I'm grossly generalizing and I'm definitely not doing that a disservice. And so I don't mean to, I skipped a lot, but something in there is true. And uh, it's interesting to think about where we're at right now, mm -hmm. because the economy for better or worse is in a season where some will argue that it's doing well. And so, you know, like I'm watching housing price, uh, housing um, mortgages going up or just the price of price of a home going up. Sorry, my brain just had a mental, mental skip. But um, so it's, it's just a weird thought. Like, so a lot of times artists are, are you know, I, I was like this very standoffish with money, very uh, skeptical of money. And, um, and so, uh, but it's like ever shaping what we value. I mean, like zombie painting, um, you know, uh, zombie abstraction, you know, is the result of market gouging and, and people, um, in some ways people coming in and, and anointing certain grad students and saying, this is the work yeah. driving up the, the cost buying up the work, creating a market for it. Now, all of a sudden, every grad student is trying to make this kind of painting. They don't realize it's a trend established through power and marketing strategies by wealthy. So then they drive the price up and then they unload the work they got at a fraction of the cost it's now worth. And then the market bottoms out again. Yeah. And so, you know, 
and so I think about that, not just in terms of um, making and practitioners, but also sort of in the realm of like how we talk about it, how we think about it, that um, that uh, how we exclude or include based on whether we're aware of it or not, where the power rests. And that's an uncomfortable discussion. But you, you end up walking into it and not even knowing it sometimes. You're like, what the heck is going on right now? Like, why why am I not able, you know, why, why is there skepticism about, um, you know, my my entry point into the the milieu of culture making? Yeah. Um, anyhow, um, so, how do, so how did you, so because I, I feel like you're, when did you come into the PhD program? So it was uh, fall 2011. Yeah, so you're coming in right on the heels of a particular time and place in, sort of the critical discourse of um, how we think about this stuff, you know, yeah. and, and kind of a, sometimes there's a hunker down fend for yourself. So in famine, sometimes artists will, will, we will hunker down and, and have to fight harder to fend for ourselves because we're definitely the first thing that gets thrown out in people's minds Yeah, because it's perceived as decadent and, and useless. All of a sudden it doesn't matter. Um, although there's no thriving society ever in any kind of way that did not have art at the center of its, um, or, you know, uh, sort of blanketing, uh, their, uh, cultural makeup interaction. Right. Um, so, so we, so on the other hand, it, it, any, any society that's flourished and sustained has had that in there implicit to their, their cultural makeup. So it's just an interesting time. So then you come in and your story is different. Yeah. And access in is, um, it's like, it's like the dude at the, uh, wizard of Oz. who's like at the door with his head popped out. You yeah. Know, he's not, not going to let you in until you give him a sob story or something. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that was, you know, um, the PhD program I'm, I was a part of, uh, highly interdisciplinary. Sure. So makeup of, uh, three different units collaborating, uh, English mass communications and art. Okay. Um, and so, um, I kind of ended up at VCU because um, I knew once I once I finished master's work, I started teaching, and really, I had begun teaching at a limited level during master's work, um, and really loved it. Both my parents are educators, mm -hmm. so it was uh, kind of a natural fit in some ways. Um, but it was a a really amazing way to problem solve mm -hmm. on a daily basis, right? Which was and still is a huge draw for it to walk into a class hear responses to questions, see what people are doing, and in the moment have to understand strategy to help them get to a different place or understand what they're saying at a deeper level or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, I taught for four years at university and I was teaching, um, I was teaching design. So uh, web design and ad design and um, also um, layout, um, basics of, of graphic design, mm -hmm. those sort of things. Um, and at some point I realized like, this is actually what I want to make my career. Mm -hmm. I want it to be about art and design and I want it to be teaching. Um, so I knew at that time with an MA, um, it was an MFA or a PhD and I didn't feel at that moment, like the MFA was the best route for me. Right. Um, so started looking at PhD programs and, uh, literally every PhD program I looked at sounded like the worst thing on the face of the earth. <laughs> Cause I was sitting there and I was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And I was kind of having these flashbacks of like how I thought in high school, mm -hmm. looking at college in only a pragmatic sense, what's going to do this or that or the other. And I was like, I'm not going to enjoy any of this. And mm -hmm. it's going to be a repeat of all the bad experiences. Yeah. So I'm looking around, I'm a little despondent actually, because I was looking at programs that people are like, that's a great program. Right. But I was like, I also want you to take like 
four semesters of statistics. Oh, like and that, yeah, I suck at math. So, well, and that, that's just the, just that, like, oh, that's the, yeah. the, the way I felt about it. No offense if you love statistics, by the way. No, we're, it's a beautiful we're super thing. thankful for you. Yeah, yeah, because we don't Somebody have to be needs that. To. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're freed up. <laughs> that's right. So, um, so I had a, a faculty member who had taught at VCU who was teaching at the university I was at at the time. And she comes to my office one day and we're chit-chatting and we were good friends. She's a fantastic lady. And she, uh, she was like, so how's stuff going with grad school? And I was like, uh, not going is probably the best way to put it. Cause I, I just haven't found any place. And she's yeah. like, you need to check out this, uh, this interesting program at VCU. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was like, VC what? Mm-hmm. And she was like, uh, VCU. And VCU. <laughs> so, uh, VCU in Richmond, Virginia. You need to check them out. And I was like, oh, okay. So I look at it and I'm like, M-A-T-X. I don't know what the heck this is. And so I look into it. I'm like, oh, VCU. Oh, they're that art school. Right. Okay. I'm putting this together. They're the ones on the list at the top that aren't private. And they're the ones that actually have like some fantastic things going on. Oh, and that graphic design program is the one that Phil Meggs taught at. And I use his book in my classes to teach people. So all these things were putting together. And then I start looking at the courses that are offered. And I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah. This is exactly what I want it to be. Plus, once you get past the core work, you get to build your program. Yep. And so uh, it took a lot of work uh, because coming in kind of as an outsider from that space, um, you know, the art school is uh, for all intents and purposes in a very positive way, very protective of sure. what it does because, um, it's unique you in that right. It is. Yeah, you yeah, don't, yeah. you don't maintain that standard. ranking That's right. and standard. If you just kind of let people come in through a back door or totally. a side window. Yeah, right. And so I get it completely, but so I had to like kind of fight for some of the courses I was taking, but once I got in and people saw like, okay, he can do the work, he knows what's yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. So, um, I, this whole time I thought you had heard about this, really great uh, art foundations, drawing instructor. Um, yeah. Well, there were these like whispers yeah. on the wind and it was just like Ryan Lateria. <laughs> Ryan Lateria. I'm just trying to, yeah, ever increase my, my mythos. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, story. Yeah. Uh, so 2011 uh, we, or well, so 2011 uh, during the, during March madness, yeah. we come up right before, uh, you know, the elite eight or whatever. Epic. And, uh, we leave before the, the win. And, uh, I was like, why don't we stay another day? Yeah. We just stayed one more day. Yeah. Um, but it's we, never going to happen again. No, no uh, I'm just kidding. Coach Rhodes. I, just kidding. I mean, like statistically, it'll be a while. It's going to be a while, maybe. I mean, there's just too many teams. I'm excited. Yeah. 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 But uh, I think we got some good hope with some of the folks coming in. So yeah. side note. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, as soon as we kind of set foot in Richmond, there was something about this place. that was like, wow, this is great. So the city itself, I was like, there's like this grunginess to it mm-hmm. in 2011 that some of that's been kind of scrubbed yeah, off. Yeah, it's been cleaned up a little bit. But there was a grunginess that was so appealing. Yeah. And I was like, this is this is actually fantastic. So the city got us. Right. And then I started talking to folks uh, in the program and I was like, this is it. Yeah. We're coming here and we're rolling hard. So August 2011, uh, we roll up uh, living in this like tiny, like 400 square foot apartment. Um, I remember that apartment. This tiny dude. Yeah. And we strong. had like... Uh, like a Christmas party with like 30 people up in it. It was nuts. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like 30 people in a sardine. Yeah. Sardine can. <laughs> totally yeah, yeah. was. Um, but you know, uh, yeah. So 2011 we come and we just start doing it. And I don't know that I actually understood what I was really getting myself into. Yeah. Cause like I got, you know, so I'm taking what, like three classes in a semester, uh, full load, um, in that first class. Um, they're like, Oh, here's your, here's your reading list for the semester. 
And it was, it was almost more books than I bought for like the entirety of undergrad. That's, that's a wonderful, um, weight to be. Yeah. Cause it's reading. is one thing. Comprehending is another. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and then, uh, in totally. dialoguing with, you know, yeah, especially when they're like, Oh, you're going to be reading about 600 pages a week. Yeah. 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 And it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. What? A, and what then a like, blessing. and then everything else too, you're yep. going to be, you're going to be writing your it's hands It's a real off. P it's a real PhD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, super fantastic, uh, went through that. Um, and, uh, you know, from the, from the jump, um, the head of the program asked you, was like, what, what's your dissertation topic? And it was, it was really to kind of front load things and like, you got to think about this soon. Yeah. And I kept trying to be like super clever and like, what's the thing? What's going to be like, like laser targeted? What's going to be so amazing. But the stuff that kept coming back to me was stuff that wasn't like, it was kind of mundane in my mind mm -hmm. because I kept reading more and more of this uh, graphic design discourse and I kept reading uh, history and I kept seeing this conversation that I was a part of and the things I cared about. Um, and people just kept saying stuff like, uh, good all mm. the time. And good yeah. is such a non word. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 yeah it's yeah. like, uh, I know there are people out there that just like love vanilla ice cream, mm -hmm. but good is the vanilla ice cream in the Sunday, mm -hmm. you know, like it could change and nobody's going to miss it too much mm -hmm. because the chocolate sauce and the strawberries or whatever, all still yeah. fantastic. So, um, I started asking some of my professors, I was like, what does this mean? And they're like, oh, you know, like it means like good, like good design. Like it's good. It's, it's like, it's good. And I'm like, okay, so you, so you don't understand either. So yeah. I'm not the only one. And right. a few professors are like, yeah, it's not, it's not totally clear. Yeah. So that became cultural like, amnesia. Yeah. It it's became real, my main, it's a real thing. My main question. Yeah. I was just like inoculation. I was like, I want to know what good design means. Mm -hmm. So dissertation became that. And it was right. a study of uh, good design uh, as a term over about a hundred years. Yeah. And so it was, uh, branching into a lot of things, so the philosophical concepts of goodness and value, um, historical concepts, yep. formal concepts, yep. functional concepts, mm -hmm. social concepts. Yeah. Um, and so I dissected it within like five different lenses of like right. how it was used predominantly in the discourse. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Gosh, goodness. You know, it's funny. Um, I do, I was saying, I do think we have like uh, perpetual, uh, amnesia for things or we're, or we're inoculated and we've been exposed to it just yeah. enough to think we know what it is and um, to know what it is and just enough to know that we don't need to know anymore. And both of those are like this weird. And so when you're talking like, and you're talking about goodness in a, a thousand year or a hundred years of design. Um, well, one of my cheeky things I always say is, you know, pictures worth a thousand words and words are worth a thousand pictures. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's mutually, uh, beneficially expressive communication that goes and goes and goes at, you know, at its best. Um, so but when you said goodness, my mind, this is cheesy, but I imagined a campfire. And so what I mean by that is the camp, the fire is lit yeah, and it gives off heat. And, um, you know, I think good is, is, uh, uh, there's some, you know, with, with the campfire, there's a collection of things that have to come together and there's a set of actions to get the fire to happen. Yeah. So once good happens, there's a question of how much heat it puts off and heat impacts states of affairs for other people. Right. Um, and, um, and then there's context. So like heat 
maybe is problematic when when the surrounding context is hot. We just don't see the need for it. Um, we're, we're swimming in it. Um, but when it's cold, heat becomes valuable. And so I'm trying to think of a metaphor. And but the other thing is that if you think about campfires, once you get it going, then you got to continue to cultivate yeah. the scope, scale, size of the fire to continue to radiate heat such that it continues to give what is what is needed. And I think a lot of time, I mean, and I, I don't know if that even makes sense or not, um, but trying to put it into a dynamic state of affairs, because when we talk about it abstractly, we, we kind of put it on a shelf and it's an inert set of concepts. Right. That's a helpful way of talking about it. It's like diachronic and synchronic. It's like, but putting it into motion, putting it into action kind of also activates the understanding that I think um, is, is, is directly relevant to how we're experiencing it. Because there's states of goodness that are, are heating up the city right now, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And for so long that we don't know what it's like to not have that goodness. Yeah. So someone is culturally stoking the campfire to keep that fire burning. And so we're continuing to get heat and uh, we can just take it for granted, you know. And uh, almost to the point that we can we can go like, ah, what is it? I don't even know if it's there. And I think uh, you see that in a lot of institutions. No, I think that's that's a really good point. So this uh, um, a couple weekends ago, I took a, a short trip up to New York, and um, Momo was having kind of a retrospective on their good design program, which was a central part of my dissertation. Okay, and so stopped by there and, and checked it out, and I think with what you're saying, like it's exactly true because, um, like at the time they, it was real happy, you know, happy sort of thing to make a little list. Right. So you've got like Edgar Kaufman jr. At MoMA had kind of his list Mm -hmm. in the forties of like, this is what good design is. Mm -hmm. And Dieter Rams talked about his, you know, his, uh, good design things. And then you have folks like, you know, Philip Johnson and, uh, Charles and Ray Eames. And they're all talking about what this means. And it's kind of like these bulleted lists. Yeah. And there's a lot of pushback on what MoMA was doing with the good design program, because at one point people were just like, Oh, you're just, you're just trying to sell stuff. Yeah. Like you're just doing this. But I think that in the selling, there's a lot of what you're talking about, about Mm -hmm. keeping the fire stoked and whatnot. And so people were buying this because there was something about it that was kind of warming their homes. Right. Like it was nicer to have a well-designed item. Right. Instead of a poorly designed item yeah. of the same type. So an ugly chair is still functional. Exactly. But a well-designed chair that's ergonomic and yeah. beautiful and uh, has consideration and uh, that has like, which about like the maker's hand is kind of yeah. on it and you kind of see that. That's a different thing entirely. Yeah. And yeah, those yeah, are the yeah. chairs, why that people still have Eames chairs now. That's right. 70 years later. Yep. Because it's a fantastic. Yeah. There's object. something where some of that stuff is, is time, time proves the point. And yes. the speculation um, until until you know there's a undercurrent that has, has has affirmed it. You know, and we have a skepticism towards authority, and I, I get that. I think there's a lot of abuse of authority, and so there's always a pushback against that. Um, but that rendering of goodness to the point of pure subjectivity and mere preference um, is a real thing, and mm-hmm. a thing that people really. I think most I think most folks understand it in those terms predominantly, and and maybe that's true. But um, the the irony of that is to to sort of you know whenever somebody dog they don't realize they're being dogmatic, but when they say with absolute assurance that goodness is pure subjectivity and preference, they've made an absolute truth claim over every possible person 
Definitely. And now they are assuming superseding knowledge over those they know, but also those they don't know and will not know in the future. And they're leveraging an absolutized statement. And they think they're actually being um, open-handed and, and are pushing against absolutized categories. Mm-hmm. And the irony is all they're doing is shifting the epistemic grounds onto themselves. And it's kind of like, how, how? so I love asking that question. Well, how do you know 100% that that's true? And nobody can ever answer that question because nobody yeah. sees it coming because they're not thinking in those terms. They're blind to their own stuff. Um, and that that's a multiply that attitude out and you get really, really deficient understandings of, of good, let alone good design, I think, or good art, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Because I think that it's one of those things that we, I think we feel comfortable at either end of the spectrum, right? but we don't necessarily feel comfortable understanding that there's a nuance Yes. between on that spectrum, right? A dynamic so, exchange. Definitely. Yeah. So you have somebody who says, Oh, it's a stri- strictly subjective thing. Yep. It's just based on you. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well then how do we make sense of people who are in agreement right. on their subjective ideas? Yeah. Um, but then you have folks who say, no, it's only objective. So if it doesn't fit these 10 criteria and I can't check these boxes, then it's not good. Yep. And there was definitely a point where that was moving into the discourse of like, have you done all of these things? Sure. If so, you have achieved this. Yeah. And that's, that's is equally caustic. Yeah. Right. Because it means that like one means that I can't talk about anything and the other means I can't make anything. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. um, I, I, I can't, I can't express myself because of this yeah. and over here, all I can do is express myself. Sure. So I can't get into a larger conversation. Yeah. And you know, so in that retrospective, there was a Fiat 500 and there was Tupperware, mm-hmm. right? These are both heavily utilitarian objects. Sure. Um, but they're beautifully designed and they stood as a, a place or maybe even a turning point as we look back. Um, and some things that were going on, but then there were more or less walking through there. It felt very much like you were looking at in parts, like an Ikea showroom <laughs> and not in any like negative sense, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. but in the sense that Ikea has been really fantastic of kind of co-opting people's stuff. But, um, but at the same time, like they do that because they understand that enough people have realized that these objects have a certain draw to right, them. Right, right, right. Well, right. and that's a natural thing too, right? Like if something's good in, in, you know, if you, if you break ground on something, there's a gift component. I talked about this one time, you know, gifts are, are best expressed when given. Yeah. And so there's a, there is a, an intended audience. So like if something's really good, you know, like if a band is really good, you know, and maybe you hear about them first, you're yeah. part of that initial crowd in the garage and you're like, holy cow, these people are really good. This is amazing. You're going to go tell other people, right? Yeah. And at some point you shouldn't be surprised if it is indeed as good as you think that it is, that other people are going to agree with you Yeah, totally. and that it might establish a plateau, if you will, a normative state of acceptability of the fact that um, Nickelback is a good band. <clears throat> okay. Th- scratch that, <laughs> that um, the Beatles are good, Yeah, you know, or, or um, you know, Nickelback's not a good band. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, 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 but truly though, the ubiquity piece. And so then what happens is um, all of a sudden people get ticked about the thing that they were championing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a weird, weird paradoxical kind kind of state of affairs. And that's why I go back to that campfire thing. Like um, flames have to continue to be stoked to do yeah. what they do. 
And, uh, you know, and then there's a, there's, you know, differing ways of being efficient and some people have different body temperatures. So they step away from the flame. They don't need as much of it. Mm -hmm. And some people need it more and at different seasons in their life. It's a, it's a dynamic exchange that's constantly going on. And, um, and I think when we don't put it into those terms, we do a disservice to the dialogue around it and possibly the makers that are coming into it or that are doing it. You know, some people are meant to be sustainers of that, which is already established as good. Some people are meant to be at the forefront establishing what will be good in the future. And both of those are valuable roles to play. Definitely valuable. Um, and I think that, I don't know. It's just, um, I think going back to an earlier point, if you start to limit the people like around the table, then the richness that comes about through what you're talking about doesn't happen. Right. Um, you know, because again, like you think uh, to extend the metaphor even more, the, the idea of like, like stories around the campfire. Exactly. You know, Culture it's baking. like, yeah. yeah, it's what it is, right? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's an activity that allows for interracial, interrelational dynamics to yeah. take place. That's right. And that's, and, and that's huge. And that's honestly like the central point of how I understand design mm-hmm. is like, these are objects that allow for the actual interconnectivity of humans. Yeah. And they either push against that. Yeah. Or push toward it yeah. for specific reasons. That's right. Now, at the end of the day, every, you know, as much as we hate it, I'll say it a million times on this show, um, every cultural expression, everything we make and do has human relationship in mind. It should, yeah. Um, it, at the end of the day, and so it's either doing that towards the ends of, I think, optimal or, you know, uh, sort of um, charitable human exchange interaction, or it's meant to close down, uh, a kind of interaction. Right. So, but either way that's to facilitate relationships and, and also then what we constitute is not a relationship. So you put it in the positive or the negative at the end of the day, we're talking about human relationships. And so the, the ways in which we particularize our expressions has rendered, like I said, a few episodes ago, renders an, an effect on us as in, in a, a positive sense, impressionable, shapeable, moldable people. So internal uh, shaping factors uh, find their balance with our own individual shaping powers that come from within and it molds out expressions. I mean, it, it, it like it's the uh, it's the stuff that facilitates what humans are in some kind of way. Yeah. Um, some kind of shaping way, not in total. I don't mean like at the cosmic level, ultimate, you know, reality right, right. kind of stuff, but at the level of, um, um, the why and the value and, um, and, uh, it's, it's provable. Otherwise we wouldn't be so guarded about the words we use. You know, yeah. there's a lot of discussion on language. Um, you know, you used to say sticks and stones, uh, may break my bones, but sure words never hurt me. But I don't think anybody believes that anymore because words have massive shaping power. Definitely. And, uh, um, so talking about design in that sense is even is critical, you know, I mean, so just yeah. to say like, um, I think you entered into a degree because also, you know, the MATX program, the PhD program, and it was like one of three, I think at that time or when it was conceived, if I, if I recall correctly, there was only like three and it was a new thing. It was a pioneering thing. Yeah. Um, because there was a recognition that there was a need for um, a kind of larger discourse uh, in these areas. Yeah. Um, and so I think you came in at a kind of a revolutionary sort of time frame where ground was being broken, you know, it's, and actually are, you're like one of the few people I know that actually 
pulled it off and did it, by the way. And yeah. A lot of people didn't even, couldn't stick it out. It, it, it's, it's difficult. A, it, it takes a very, I think it takes a very specific type of person to be in, um, in a program that is so interdisciplinary and collaborative right. yep. that like it, it, you have to be very flexible. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best way to put it. And this is not a pat on my back, uh, because I think a lot of that, uh, the sticking to it, um, that happened probably came more from like an internal stubbornness. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, I think it's, it, it was, is extremely helpful, um, to kind of be, I don't know. You think of like, like bear grills of that show he had where they mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of drop them out in the wilderness and yep. he just kind of has to deal with them, this stuff himself. And you realize there's like a cameraman there yeah. in case he like falls off a cliff or That's whatever. Right. But you know, the, the, the structure is very limited yep. for that. Um, but their survival instincts and the training and whatnot allow him to kind of play out well within that situation. And in some smaller way, uh, it, it, it's the same sort of space. So it was a nice, uh, breeding ground, I think for understanding, like, what does it look like for, um, professional practice as a creative mm-hmm. to be something that nobody's defined for you? Yeah. 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 You know, like you were saying, like, um, understanding that actually the, the whole idea of creative practice, um, is not self-defined but it is in some ways Mm self-discovered. So we do it through failures. Sure. uh, Giving us better boundaries uh, through our interests, our skill sets, whatever it might be. Um, And so the the program itself exists in that way where it's like you kind of have to, a lot of it was like a kind of a European model. You're building the program around your interests. Right, right, right. right. And interests are things that are not stationary. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So things change. Yeah. Um, And interests aren't necessarily things that are just happening to you. Right. They're things you have to go after and you have to foster and um acquaint yourself with deeply and and you move through relational you know ups and downs um for all kinds of reasons that that can lead you questioning your intentions you know and we talk about this as like ideas that are good until you're in the throes of it and you're like should i quit school or not or do i should i be doing should i be an artist anymore should i be a designer anymore yeah and i've i've definitely wrestled with those questions uh ad nauseum too much i think it's done it sounded too much of my output for for uh decade oh definitely more. i can yeah yeah i can feel maybe. that yeah. yeah 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 um and so so talk about so there's the academic side and then you did mention um you actually are putting these theories into practice because you were doing client-based work yeah um so about 2007 i uh kind of formed my own thing um and started doing client work and I was doing, um, you know, a lot of like uh, publication design. So I was mm-hmm. designing magazines for folks that were launching magazines or kind of rebranding them, uh, that moved into like uh, brand development, um, and strategy, um, web design, kind of your, your, your run of the mill, uh, one-stop shop design mm-hmm. studio. Gotcha. Um, and so it was very practical, um, in a lot of senses, um, helping people facilitate their businesses. Right. Um, and I never had any issue with that, but on the side, I was still doing my own work. So like, uh, typographic posters, um, I was getting into furniture building, Mm -hmm. um, still, um, doing that and not seeing them as separate things, even if one was kind of paying the bills and the other was giving me sanity Mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, and so it, it developed and changed a lot um, over time. But uh, currently what it looks like is um, 
about 60% of my client load comes from one major international client. Okay. And uh, they do a lot of financial uh, kind of um, financial work. Mm -hmm. So uh, ratings and uh, analysis and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so I'm doing um, a bunch of their internal marketing and uh, documentation. And it's, uh, it's frustrating yeah. in some ways because uh, the conversation is not being led by design. It's being right. led by um, poorly crafted. And when I say poorly crafted, I don't mean the quality of the content is poorly crafted. I mean the, the conceptualization of how it has to look is poorly crafted. Right. So right. the structure that I have around me is a little too tight, I think, to make it really achieve its goals. Yeah. But I don't think that that's an outcome that comes about just because you're doing work. I think it comes about because a lot of stuff I've read and been studying, like it's like, hey, there's probably something that's not happening here. Sure. Like the object is not functioning in the way they believe it is, mm-hmm. just because it's adhering to a brand manual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so most of my work now is is a uh, branding, uh, right, right, marketing, and um, just honestly trying to. It's been a lot of years getting to a place where I think I feel comfortable actually doing expressive work. Yeah. Right. I mean, 36. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, in December, the first piece I made that I think I would actually consider like anything that would be um, specific to my interest in art is the first piece I ever made. Right. And I felt comfortable about. Yeah. 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 And I guess that's normal. I don't know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think, um, I mean, I think from, from, from the way you're entering into the cultural milieu, um, you're still relatively young. You know, I got you by a handful of years. Um, it's sort of like, right. You know, I think what, what you've been doing is plotting out the terrain. Um, so it's sort of like plotting the land. Yeah. And you, you know, when you got a vision for what, you're, how you're going to build a life, um, you can't, you can't have everything all at once. That's true. So you start to plot it out and then, um, and then you, you cultivate it, you know? And I think that's, you know, I think those are those things that are, that operate at multiple iterations to various degrees. So the, the larger lands plotted, then you get into smaller scale zones where you're like, okay, I'm going to carve out time to do work that actually is, is more personal to me or more idiosyncratic to my personal interests and self desires. And that's going to live in a space with less constraints. But simultaneously, I'm going to be uh, utilizing my creative gifts to achieve these goals for the services of this end. Yeah. And I think, um, and then that, that's variegated, you know, because now you're a professor and then you're, uh, you're, you're our design communications uh, court uh, director at um, Shaco Art Space. And then you're, we're, we're doing this podcast together and, you know, the art journal's coming, you know, so it's like um, the timing is really interesting. Yeah. And it's how you've situated yourself to actually be in a larger discourse. Lo and behold, you are, you know? Yeah. Um, and so um, right time, right place. But also you put in the, I think you kind of put in the work over an extended period of time to even recognize the right place. Um, now that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I think the, uh, we, we talked about this will the other week, um, like the work, that allows the work to happen, mm-hmm. you know, is usually stuff that we're not really um, super excited about. Right. I, I tell my students all the time. That's the, that's the not sexy work is the work that enables the work. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's a lot it, more of that than there is the other. I mean, you know, it looks different. Like a few weeks ago I was at a buddy's house and he was constructing um, 
the uh, structure for some paintings and he was showing me this stuff and he's like, you know, this isn't, this isn't like my lane. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel a hundred percent comfortable in this, but it's the work. He can't have the, he can't have the canvas without that, that structure. That's right. You know, so he can't, he can't stretch that canvas until he's got something to stretch it on. That's right. Um, and he can't paint until he's got that. And so there's all these steps before mm-hmm. the stuff that I think we think of earlier in life is like, oh, that's the work I want to do as yeah, an artist or yeah, designer. Yeah. We're really just responding to the outcomes. Yeah. And yeah we're, totally. like, the work is disclosed to us. We don't actually know the work, yeah. what the work is. We'll probably talk about that at some point in this, like an episode on work. It'd be a good one. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's interesting. Did, did he end up making a painting? Uh, it's in progress. It's in progress. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, so where do you, where do you see this going for you, you know, in the future? How, how are you, how are you feeling about tra- trajectory, you know, with the, the different lanes you're operating in? Um, well, I feel like, you know, 12 years in to this, uh, design company, I feel like really in the last two years, I've finally kind of gotten my head around what it looks like. So that's, that's great. It's something that I don't feel like I'm fighting against or fighting for. I feel like it's something that feels much more, um, incorporated into life and into my practice. Um, it's matured in some ways where I know, I know where it sits and what it does. Um, but also it's, it's growing in a way that it'll allow me to take on more, um, projects based on preference and passion. Mm -hmm. So, um, doing things that are self-directed is definitely, um, an interest there. Um, and not just client directed, um, and things that, uh, are market facing, not just, passion projects I have sitting around my house, you right, know, right. And there's nothing wrong with those, yeah, you know, yeah, but there yeah. is, there's something nice about the validation of others right? that we can't ignore sure. and just say that art exists in a vacuum for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, things are, if we didn't believe that anybody who critiques that needs to, uh, get off Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, know, for real. Cause you, cause that's basically what that's predicated on. Yeah. It's like, go take all your stuff and just stick it in a closet and stop yeah. talking about it. Yeah. yeah. Because you yeah. don't agree with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Cause I do think, you know, if you're depending on the, the diversity of our audience, which we know is somewhat diverse. Um, if you're a designer, you might be feeling a little more interested or intrigued. If you're a, you know, a painter's painter, which I come out of being a little bit more of a painter's painter in, in the historical sense, I guess. But, um, there might've been times where I, I would have been suspicious of this talk. Oh yeah. Even myself. So I'm like, this is good because probably going to push on some things, but that's the whole point is the, the, the idea of this podcast is to know and be known by each other. And I think something that we have thinking about the future of Shaco art space is a sincere and honest partnership, you know, um, which extends beyond just, you know, you and I, but we have, you know, shout out to like our whole team to Callie, Laura, Meredith, Sam, yeah, definitely. Um, Rachel, Nick, uh, David and Ashley, um, Tim and Lisa. Um, there's, yeah. Who am I forgetting? I, I forget let's see, uh, uh, Shane. Um, I guess if you want to get into all the other folks, we got like Curtis, Johnny, Chino yeah. folks yeah. that have helped yeah, us yeah, along yeah. the way with yeah, this yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, and that's even, that's not even half of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, even artists that we've worked with, like Nikki painter has been such an awesome Fantastic. support and, um, continues to be in, you know, friends like John Adams, who we'll probably have on here at some point. There's just a lot of people uh, that that um, you know aren't here on this episode, but are like so vital. There's no way we're doing this without the, the community. Yeah, totally. And so, um, um, yeah, I'm just thinking like 
I think we have a unique opportunity as a nonprofit because you and I are willing to work together for a common good, for a shared goal. And we're not threatened by the differences. And I think sometimes like, you know, we talk about diversity and, but then we pigeonhole ourselves away from new possibilities. Cause I do think we have to, we have to think afresh about what it looks like to, to have a very good gallery yeah. and a very good uh, exhibition venue for very good artists, uh, really interesting artists. And it has to be a long-term vision. Some people want everything. You know, one of my favorite things about doing this is how many people sometimes look at, not at what you've done, but what, at what you haven't done. And yeah. why is it not there right this second? Mm-hmm. And, and they neglect to understand what it looks like to actually build something. They never ask you what your goals are. They just assume it and then critique it. And you're like, there's a lot of stuff that takes time and money and effort and resources and wisdom in order to, to, to sustain it. And I think that you're going to be a, and have already been 100%, a, such a, a key role in that. And um, I'm excited for people to have more interaction and discussion about these things. Like as we get into like mentoring professional practices, Definitely. I think your, your experiences are going to be immensely valuable especially when we're disarmed from each other and our guard is down and we're able to actually get into fresh discussion on like, how do I sustain my studio practice? How do I sustain my design practice? How do I not only sustain it, but actually cause it to flourish or thrive? Um, I, I just think that there's going to be um, a wave of, of really positive contribution that comes from uh, this, this collaboration, you know, definitely. And, and, and honestly, like what you're talking about, about the the potential of like being suspicious of the conversation or, or whatever else is really, uh, my teaching at VCU is, is a lot of kind of the first few weeks of courses because yeah. I, I come out and I start talking about things like business and yeah. people just kind of look at me like, what this doesn't yeah, have to do with talking art. about dirty words. Those yeah. are dirty words. And business. it's like, yeah. and I, and, and I talk about money a lot yeah. and I've gotten uh, evaluations where people are like, this guy is such like a capitalist jerk. All he cares about yeah, is yeah. money and telling us we got to make money, make yeah, money. Yeah, and yeah. I, and so I always have to like throw that caveat in and be like, look, the only reason I'm saying this is because next month I want you to have paid your bills adequately so you can do this again. Yeah. Cause you will have to pay your bills. Yeah. And like, and so if reality. we just assume that yeah. as something that we can't change yeah. uh, in the current setup of everything, then, uh, I want you to make money, not for the sake of money, but for the sake of continuation of your practice. That's right. And that's a completely different conversation totally. than me saying pile up stacks somewhere yeah, yeah, for yeah. yourself later yeah. on. I don't care about that. Right. But I do care about you doing it well so that there are more and more of you out there doing it, yep. impacting culture totally. and showing stuff and creating this fantastic place where we have uh, just an, an inundation of art and design and everything. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's um, once students kind of get past that little bit of suspicion, then we get in some good conversations and we start to start to see the like, Hey, you might not like the concept of marketing, but uh, you're kind of engaged in it like eight hours a day on Instagram anyway. Yeah. You're already How about doing you it. be an active role in it now? Exactly. Go ahead and own what you're already doing. Yeah. 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 It's like when people with, with really conservative people and someone starts talking about sex, uh-huh. everybody freaks out. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable. We don't talk about that. And yeah. you like you do and you're like, uh, uh, you know, and it could secretly people want to know. Yeah. But they don't, you're like, wait, is this, is this okay? And it's funny, like money is like, uh, you know, and people, people will come up to you like in the, in secret and be like, can we talk about how I can pay my bills? And you're it's, like, you feel like you're under like watch or something. And I'm like, Hey, it's okay. You, you need to make some money. I, I was there. I was, I like had a couch surf. I grew up broke for the most part. And like, you know, and went to school. I was 
you know, sleeping in my studio for a time. And I, you know, I actually had that goofball notion that I needed to be starving to actually be an artist. Yeah. So then I became, I desired to become the artist formerly known as starving. And and I thought that that would be the better route to go and to actually be healthy and not die. Cause what good is that? Um, you know, the Van Gogh story is overplayed and and, uh, tragic and actually really tragic. So it's like, uh, um, we got to make it okay to talk about this in reasonable terms. You yeah, know? definitely. Um, and that's the thing, right? Nobody, again, nobody needs to like be the huge proponent of like, okay, let's have market driven art. Nobody's yeah. saying that. That's not a part of any of this conversation, yeah. but it is understanding that our art does exist within a market. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, paying my rent is nice. Having, yeah. having good food on the table is nice, Yeah, you know? And uh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like if you take the idea of like a house plant and somebody tells you for all these years, you know, you, you need to make sure you water those plants. And so what you do is you stick it in a dark closet and you just keep watering it. And then you're like, I don't know why it's dead. Cause I watered it. And it's like, Oh, but you also need sunlight. Uh, cause it's not going to grow otherwise. And so you have those two sides of, um, your actual practice and the work right. goes into that. Yep. And then the ability for it to be economically sustainable, mm-hmm. you know, cause I don't know if you're, if you're working 40 hours a week doing something that isn't art and you're telling yourself that that makes you an artist because it gives you some money to do something else, I think we need to have some other conversations. Mm-hmm. And those conversations are not indicting conversations, but those conversations are, how do we get you to where you're doing 40 hours a week of art mm-hmm. and it is supporting you? Right. So you don't have to do that other job. You don't Let alone do. supporting other people. Right. I mean, that was one of the things that Laura and I, I, I was in a, a radio interview for an NPR show, uh, like last year. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, the goal was, you know, I want to make, I want to make sure I have a job, you know, just, I gotta, I gotta eat, I gotta provide for my family, but also I want to be a blessing to my neighbor. I want to provide for, uh, strangers. I want to, and, 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 you know, I was like, I want to start thinking about this in terms of like something like, what would it look like to sustain my, my studio practice, but actually make jobs for other people. Like, and that seemed like such a daring in my brain, if not impossible thing, but I latched onto it. And the, the more I latched onto it, the less impossible it's become. And, uh, if more of us could kind of grapple with that, you know, um, now we're in, you know, we're in our season of fundraising for, uh, Shaco art space. Yeah. And money is a thing, you know, and art, art is hard to support sometimes, but, you know, we're wrestling with that. We, 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 you know, we sincerely need to raise money and, you know, shout out to everyone who's generously given to us definitely in the, the GoFundMe. Um, we are looking for corporate sponsors, you know, so if you're listening and you know someone, um, please contact us. I mean, um, but the goals are to make, to give money away for scholarships, to make jobs for other people. And if we could grow this, that could happen. And it takes a community in a transactional understanding your roles kind of way, you know, not everybody gets to be in this room doing this, this component. We just happen to be the ones that are. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that this is the only significant role to play. Right. Um, so even in like designing community, I guess, you know, you think about, uh, compositional makeup and, and, uh, intensifiers and who has, who has leverage in what place and how do we, how do we utilize the spheres of influence we have and leverage some of those resources towards the ends of something good like this, you know? Um, so, I mean, I'm hopeful, but it's work, you know? And I think people have to see the vision of like how we're thinking about it and why. 
Yeah, yeah. it definitely is. And I mean, it's, um, you know, the art and design worlds are not like monolithic structures. No, I think a lot of times we feel like it is because there, there's a, there's a misunderstood, almost like painted as like mysticism, sort of like entry point. And we're like, well, I don't know where that is or what that is. Maybe I'll fall into it. Um, but they're not these monolithic structures. They are very much uh, collective voices of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and that's fantastic, but it's also difficult. Mm-hmm. So when I have a student who uh, is saying, you know, I, I, I need to know how to like pay my bills and do this. And I'm saying, yeah, you do because this, this community of art and design needs to have your voice and every other voice. So anytime that you say five years into it, I'm just going to stop doing this. It's hard. I can't make money. I'm going to go do something else. Like that's detrimental to the entire community. Mm-hmm. Um, because your unique experiences and voice actually provide things because art is at the basis of it in a very fantastic way. It should be something highly generative. Yeah. And so yeah, if yeah. you take any of those components out, it's generative right. nature changes. Um, and so it's fantastic in that sense, but it's also difficult because at times if you just have a loose group of people, like you've got to have voices that kind of speak up mm-hmm. and say things. Um, and that's hard to do when you're juggling a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I love, I, I've told students, I'm like, you know, I'd never get emails from students asking me to buy their work. Mm-hmm. And that kind of breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, I want, like, I want you to reach out to me and be yeah. like, Hey, I do you're cool about stuff. To, dude. I know, right? You're going to get 1,000 emails from me with different <laughs> names, and you're going to notice a, a strange similarity in all the paintings. <laughs> yeah, These got, all look like Letarius. I got, got this email from a dude named Dryan who Dryan. Uh, paints really geometric paintings. Cyan Letarius. Do you this, know this guy? How many brothers do you have? <laughs> I didn't and realize your last name student. was that common. <laughs> I'm your student in the broad sense. I'm, I'm listening to your podcast right now. That's right. I'm a student in life yeah. right now. And yeah. I'm taking you on as one of my professors. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, it's just, I don't know. I want, I want students to be more actively engaged and like, really like we have good students. Oh yeah. Definitely. And like we, I love my students and they have no, I don't see any reason that they should be like self-conscious about sharing their work because it's good and people yeah. need to know about it. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And I like when I see cool yeah, that stuff. Good work is thrown off that heat like a campfire. Y'all I've heard something like that before. Yeah. And that's a great metaphor, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's uh, and you want to, you want to cozy up next to it. That's right. Um, but you know, it's, you know, like anything else you need to know where it is. You need to be pointed towards it. Yeah. And like, honestly, like if, if we can be anything, at, yeah. at Shaco Art Space, like if we can be anything, I'd love to be like one of those those kind of like buoys with like the blinking light in the mm-hmm. middle of the ocean, which yeah. is like, hey, here's a here's a point yeah. where like we can rally, right? right? And it's just kind of bobbing there yeah. in like the floating ocean. Yeah. It'd be minus great. the sharks. Yeah, I'm afraid. Minus of the sharks. Yeah, I'm definitely afraid of sharks. But it would be, you know, that's that's what I'm like. Hey, like, come on, let's 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 make this better for everybody. Did you know that more people die from? Um, snack machines falling on him than shark attacks annually. I, I knew that you were going to say that. <laughs> like there's something in me that was just like, he's going to say the snack machine thing. <laughs> Cause I was like, it's my favorite thing to think about when I don't have, when I shouldn't be thinking about it. I mean, what's funny is like the other statistic is like more people die from rhino attacks than shark attacks. That's amazing. But in my head, I was like, he's not going to say rhino. I'm not. Yeah. He's going to say snack machine. Because I'm a, I'm, you know, whenever I look at the snack machine in, our, in my department, there's three of them. And I'm like, which one are you trying to get me today? Well, see, it's also crazy too, because what that means is there's so many people out there getting rowdy with a snack machine. Yeah. Who, and I'm like, just well, I've rocking never this seen, thing. Yeah. Who's rocking the snack machine? 
I mean, yeah. Anyhow, total divergence, but I love thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. I love thinking about this. I mean, I don't really want to think about anybody dying from the snack machine, but I'm just like, what state are you in? I mean, you're dude, just rocking a stack machine. Hey, we're, we're in it now. Right. I mean, everybody's yeah. moving into finals. You've got yes. people that are going on three days and no sleep and yeah. they're just like, I need my bugles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I need, <laughs> I need my honey bun. Those things are like 25 <laughs> cents in a liquor store, yeah. but you're paying a dollar 50 risking your life for it. The honey bun didn't drop. I mean, that's what it is, right? You've been going off of caffeine and sugar for three <laughs> days right. and you've overpaid massively for a thing you're not getting. Nobody knows how old those honey buns are. No, dude, they're you just like I mean? crystallized and like weirdly moist. It's just neat. Yeah, it's just how weird. do those things stay moist for a year? I don't think they're supposed to be. I Yeah, I I'm think, convinced that anything that stays in an unnatural state for longer than like a month was made for outer space, failed to succeed for NASA. And then they're like, let's just drop that into the uh, lexicology of grocery stores and they'll they'll redistribute the goods. Well, it's like uh, like that guy. Sunny who, Delight. He nailed the uh, Twinkie up in his shed and he left it there and then like the nail rusted out before the Twinkie did anything. The, the Twinkie lasted longer. It was made for outer space. Yeah, dude. And now like, uh, I don't think it's weird that the Twinkie came first and yep. then we got memory foam mattresses. I agree. I, I think I'm serious. This is getting into design. Also, you know, I, I, yeah, when you, anything that's wrapped in tinfoil, you know, like that particular kind of NASA tinfoil, like pop tarts. I love pop tarts. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of food that came out of the sixties and the Spudnik era, and the way they're designed and the way they're packaged feels like it was from outer space. Yeah, and it, it gives you a feel of like this pop tart is maybe not that much different than like the conspiracy theorist with a tinfoil hat. It, it, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't taste. So they're like, this is cherry, but and I love pop tarts, but it doesn't taste like anything. It has no reference in the world as we understand it. Except at, like at the medicine. natural level. It tastes like medicine. It tastes like, yeah. That's right. I mean, that's, um, I mean, that's my wife's critique of a lot of like flavored sort of things. Like anything grape or cherry, it's like, it's like just NyQuil. It's NyQuil. You know. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper was actually supposed to be medicine. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, totally. I think maybe like cornflakes were too. Like oh, all of these things. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's funny. Like we're getting pretty far afield, but I think we're tangentially still talking about this. Um, I think we are. I mean, like, you know, the, the intention behind design where you think it's going and then where it ends up going. Yes. Same sort of way. I think with uh, professional practice and art, yeah. honestly, like yeah, yeah, yeah. where I am now, I mean, law school yeah. was the possibility. And now I'm That's teaching right. with a PhD yeah. at number one public art school in the country. And I'm teaching like entrepreneurial business practice within arts. Yeah. So you're, you're basically saying we all have to find our metaphorical Twinkie. Yeah, we do. And then nail that thing up nail to the shed, down man. And make it last longer than the nail. That's right. You should be the Twinkie, not the nail. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, man. That's, a, that's an exciting way to end. Do you think that's a good way? What, do you want to add anything else? I don't think there's any way to go up from that. Yeah, that that's an amazing image. I think that's Everest right See, I mean, there. image making is a real thing. And so it I is. Think, I want to thank you for the, the Twinkie image. Hey, it's my pleasure, this man. Is, this is a... I think, if anything, the flurry at the end of this talk today is a picture of collaboration at its finest. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's there's probably, you're probably not going to get better than that from us. Um, I think actually you will. I think the, yeah. more, um, the more coffee I drink and the more sugar I load into my body, um, the more Taco Bell I eat. Um, yeah, just imagine if we recorded this in the evening instead of the oh mornings. Gosh, yeah, if I, if, you know, yeah, and the, the more excited I get, I, I will say this, sometimes I feel like I'm cheating on Taco Bell when I eat Chipotle, but I'm hungry right now, so I'm thinking about Chipotle too, so... I love the idea of that, that rap metaphor, you know, let's just yeah. dump everything we can into one big tortilla, roll it up and eat it. Yeah. Collaboration. 
Yeah, it's gonna be my interdisciplinary. It's, it's not gonna be the the table metaphor anymore. Yeah. It's the it's the giant burrito. Yeah, let's go with the giant burrito metaphor for a while. I like that one too. Yeah, Campfires and burritos. How terrible it would be to have a burrito that's only rice. That's right. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that's a much better image. That's exactly. Nobody wants it, to eat that. Yeah. So I think what we'll do is we'll start a new program called Campfires and Burritos, and it'll be a our instructional. I had an indie band in college called Campfires and Burritos. We were pretty good. <laughs> You're pretty good. <laughs> That was pre tight. That was pre. That was pre uh, tight pants or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pre skinny jeans. It was. It was like. It was like. Uh, I don't know. Like post new wave grunge. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we didn't have instruments. Yeah, I. I, I think that. Um, well, I thought we could end on, on Twinkies, but we're going to end there. Yeah. So it's even better. Um, so thank you for thank you for listening. We are. You know, we won't. Well, I suppose if you're running a nonprofit, you're forever fundraising, which terrifies me, to be honest with you, because that's not anything I grew up dreaming about um, <laughs> not by a long shot. Um, and so we are we are new to fundraising for Shaco Art Space. A lot of what we've done has been done through uh, through community efforts. But a lot of people just kind of have uh, believe in the mission, believe yeah. in the vision. And so we've grown. You know, I think my hope just in closing was that when we finally came to a place, if we came to a place where we were fundraising, that people could look into Shaco Art Space and go, wow, look at everything they've done yeah. without fundraising. Mm-hmm. So that you could see that we're actually doing the work and that your your support and your resources and your money and you're spreading the word is actually going to responsible people that actually have a vision that have already been sort of doing it well, I guess. And um or I think we are doing it well and and that that there's a little more of an assurance that that's going to continue to happen as opposed to it being if you give us money, then we'll do it. And so yeah, we've been definitely. doing it, you know? And so um, I don't want to make every podcast about that, but we just are in a season right now uh, that happens to coincide with the launch of the podcast, uh, Shaco Art Speak, um, and uh, just the larger uh, goals of Shaco Art Space to um, fundraise, to expand what we're doing sustain the new space that we got with art studios so we can build out art re- art residencies and actually gareth and i have a lot of classes programs that we want to be able to release at times that are good for you all and so if you're listening locally or abroad um consider sponsoring us consider supporting us financially uh whether it's five dollars you know uh just this morning we got up and somebody it was beautiful somebody gave fifteen dollars and and that's a I treasure that. Heck like yeah. that's no small thing. Not Man, at all. There's no condescension there. I had a, a good friend give five bucks and I'm like, that's a big deal to me. Like, yeah. um, and so, you know, if you give $5 or $500, which we've received both and $700 and there's been generous giving across the board. Um, I'm thankful for what you can give in your seasonal life. And I know it's no small deal. Definitely. And so if you would continue to do that, spread the word, we need to reach a goal. Um, as if you haven't looked at our, our GoFundMe, the goal is to get to at a minimum 30,000, um, is what we're trying to reach out to. So if you're feeling moved today, as you're listening, um, consider to give, um, if you've already given, but you're feeling provoked, um, we're good with second helpings. So give again, yeah, um, I definitely, love seconds. yeah, seconds. I mean, it's, and, uh, be on the lookout. Our, our website is almost complete. Almost we're, there. Yeah. We're really close. So, um, 
uh, coming soon. Our, our website will be relaunched with uh, capacities to um, allow you to know more about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we just want to thank you for listening and for all the encouragement. We've gotten so many encouraging uh, responses from this podcast. And, you know, if there wasn't an audience, uh, um, Gareth and I would be talking, but I don't think we would be doing it this way. And so um, we do want to uh, bring something of value to you all. And so we really appreciate your listening. And without your listening and your support, um, I don't think this could ever happen. And, and just to remember that um, I think our, our aspirations are to start conversations, yes. not to close them down, not to have the final say. And so our heart's desire is to, to initiate conversation. And we want to learn alongside you all. And so, um, so feel free to reach out to us, dialogue, share interests that you have. If there's things you want to hear us talk about, um, we're going to provide avenues for you to communicate that with us. And so we've got a lot of great things coming in the future with Shaco Art Speak. And so until we talk to you next time, thank you. Yeah. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.